Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for our very first episode of Certainty Talks. On this show, we'll be talking about certainty, a topic that feels more important today than ever before, but all in all, always an important topic. We have my good friend Paul Sparks here. He's not only a very successful real estate investor, but he's also a certified certainty advisor. Now, one of my favorite business books is The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham, and he asked us one question that really knocked me back. He says, smart people do dumb things. Here's the proof. How much money would you have right now if I gave you the ability to unwind any three financial decisions you have ever made? Or put another way, by my friend Dan Nicholson, if you look back at the last three years by months and turn all your negative months into zeros, what would happen to your bottom line? Now, I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires, and the information on this podcast alone will help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, I assure you, you will become one. And if you get value today, please tag a friend below, share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. So, Paul, why don't you introduce our awesome friend here? Yeah, happily. Um, Dan has become a mentor of mine for... Uh, I'd say about, I don't know, close to a year, I came into Dan's world. And um, so Dan is, how, do, how would I describe Dan? He is one of the uh, smartest guys I've, I've come across. He's, his, his brain is essentially a computer. Um, and he's taught me a lot about this concept of certainty. He runs one of the top accounting firms in the, in the nation. He was involved with setting uh, multiple accounting standards. Um, uh, Dan is someone that I've learned a lot from, and I'm, I'm super happy to have him uh, joining us as part of the Whale Club. And uh, Dan, did I cover that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So we wanted to bring you on, Dan, just to kind of... Um, talk with you about this idea of certainty. I've, I, like I said, I've learned a lot from you with this and uh, wanted to give you a chance to explain when we say certainty, what do we mean by that? Mm. Well, first off, uh, I have an, a lot of uh, background envy right now looking at you guys and my stark uh, white wall. Uh, so bear with me, everyone. Uh, Thrown off a little bit today because my family has uh, COVID, but uh, Hopefully there won't be too much coughing and sneezing. So I started uh, with that said, I started thinking about certainty uh, in particular five or six years ago, I was presenting at the CFO conference and uh, I'm sure everyone that's watching this is really jealous of like, I, I sure wish I was in a room with 300 other CFOs. Uh, it was as dynamic as you would expect it would be, but I was in, uh, I was presenting uh, to these CFOs and uh, many of which are, were running outsourced CFO companies, meaning that you could hire, you could, as a small business owner, hire them for advice. And everyone was asking the same questions around client retention. And what I realized in that moment uh, is that the reason why they were suffering so much with client retention is they didn't know how to bring it back to their clients' goals, the most basic level. So it was a transaction. Uh, rather than a than a relationship, and as you might imagine, accountants, finance people, we tend to like get get overly technical quickly and throw out a bunch of words and things that we uh, the client doesn't necessarily understand. But really, at the at the essence of uh, what people are asking the finance space is, am I going to be okay? Like the most basic level, am I going to be okay? Am I am I going to run out of money? Now I've noticed that for uh, clients that are just getting started, small business owners. I've noticed that at the, the clients that have hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, it's hard to relate or hard to imagine if you're at that level, how could I still be worrying about, am I gonna be okay? But more houses, uh, uh, you've got more houses and, and people that you're taking care of. And so the expenses just keep going up and up and up. And up. Sorry, I'm hearing a background noise, Are you guys, also, it's not in the recording. I apologize. Now. I already messaged them. Oh, okay. No, no worries. Sorry. Uh, so at the most basic level, people are wondering, am I going to be okay? Right. Uh, in the finance space, but I think that applies to, to pretty much every other domain uh, service that you're, 
am I going to be okay? Is my market, I want my marketing to work out because I want it to work out because am I going to be okay? Is it going to, am I going to hit my goals ultimately? And so I started thinking about that. And around that time, I heard this quote from this guy, Chip, Chip Conley. And he has this book of equations to explain kind of uh, human behavior. And uh, he says, anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. So anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. And I went, that, that was like one of those moments that almost kind of knocks you over. He's like, okay, that's what I'm working towards because I can change that to say financial anxiety equals financial uncertainty times financial powerlessness. Or we could say marketing anxiety equals marketing uncertainty times marketing powerlessness. Or you could add real estate to that or crypto or, you know, we could just keep going uh, fitness. We could keep going on and on and on. And so the anxiety is that, am I going to be okay? Right. Anxiety is worrying about the future, the like most basic level. Am I going to be okay? All right. Well, if I can help people have more certainty and more power over their situation, then I'm going to reduce their anxiety. I'm going to address that. Am I going to be okay? So, uh, so that was, uh, that was sort of the pulling, unraveling, if you will, uh, peeling back at the onion to get to this. People are worried about if they're going to be okay, how do I really solve that? I give them more certainty. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And I think what's interesting is that part where, you know, as, as a, a CFO or an accountant, you're using formulas to describe human behavior. Uh, it's a very fascinating idea. Yeah. So I, I started. Yeah, it to, is. I, uh, oh, go ahead, Paul. Go ahead, Dan. Sorry. Well, I started to take that one step further and okay, well, what, what, what really is certainty? What do we really want to, what do we really want to know? And what I found is that, uh, <clears throat> there seems to be three things that everyone wants. And then the rest is a wild card that's individually specific. And so everyone seems to want to know, can I pay off my debts if I have any, do I have enough in sort of an emergency fund where I can pay my day-to-day -day bills and then. Uh, will I have enough where I can retire? Or if you're uh, an entrepreneur, uh, uh, when can I have enough where I don't have to work? doesn't mean I won't work, but I want enough to have options. So everyone seems to have those three priorities. I've yet to have anyone push back on that. The timeline of when people want to fund those priorities changes, but everyone seems to have those three. And then, then we get into preferences. Some people want to have boats and private islands and jets and lots of different properties. And some people want the opposite of that, a really stoic life. And so certainty, as far as the way that I define it, is taking all of those things that you want, sort of the core priorities and then your unique preferences, assigning a date and dollar value to that. And in the act of doing that, you've created your own personal solvable problem. Now that I've put dollar amounts and dates to kind of my vision board. Now I can figure out how much more I need to actually make that happen. So we turn sort of this concept of certainty into helping people have uh, create a solvable problem, an equation where they can figure out how much more they actually need to make. Because if you've ever tried to put together a vision board, you're usually left with more anxiety afterwards because you're like, okay, cool. I got the six pack abs up there and I got the Lambo and I got all the houses. And now I don't know what to do with that other than I feel like I need to be working a lot more than I have been, right? So that's because it's not a solvable equation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things uh, that was that that concept of the solvable problem makes a lot of sense to us that are very technically minded. You know, Steve and I are both engineers and with your background as a solvable problem. But essentially what it is, is you're just you're taking your goals and you're turning it into a math equation, right? Mm -hmm. We do that because, you know, this reminds me of the first we talk a lot about in the whale club and in CCA about the first wealth commandment. Uh, we want to bias closer over more. And as entrepreneurs, a lot of us are these visionary types. We get into this business and we have a tendency to want to build and conquer uh, for the sake of it, right? And we find ourselves playing a game that we didn't end up 
or initially uh, intend to play. We, you know, a lot of us go into entrepreneurship to create a, you know, the life that we want to create, like you said, certain preferences and certain, certain core priorities. We want to get closer to those things. But along the way, we sort of find ourselves oftentimes getting further away from those things. Steve, have you seen that in, in your business and career you observe stuff like that? I mean, I think the biggest thing, right, um, is that we get into this career, real estate is kind of like financial freedom and time freedom, right? Like the, you maybe on social media today, what, what really catches your eye is the Lamborghini. Uh, but what caught my eye back, you know, in mid 2000s was the idea that I could one day retire with passive cash flow, hang out on the beach, drink my Mai Tais, whatever, right? Like that's, that was kind of the dream. And then what happens is you, t- you talked about Paul, like getting into a game that you weren't planning on getting into is you get into real estate and you see how, how well everyone's doing, or at least appears how, how well everyone's doing. And he's like, I want that. And being entrepreneurial, being drivers or people that don't, you know, follow directions really well, uh, we tend to want to compare how, how everyone else is doing and we measure our happiness and our success based off how everyone else is doing. And the problem with that is that we can't help but have the goalpost keep moving. And so we're perpetually dissatisfied, perpetually uh, uh, unsettled. And, you know, you ask, you go to these masterminds and we talk about retirement and like, what do you mean retirement? Right? Like retirement is something that we thought about before we got into the business, but that's something we really think so much about after we get into the business because uh, we, we're, um, we're always going after more. We're always thinking we can do more. And this is the first time uh, when I was talking to you, Paul, a few months ago about this concept of closer versus more. It's a very different way of looking at, you know, what, uh, what the target is or how to accomplish, how to measure if you're, if you're going the right direction. Yeah, it seems fairly obvious, doesn't it? Um, making decisions that get you closer to the things that you want. But as we know, in practice, that's that's very difficult. I'm sure, Dan, you've observed that for years and years and years with your clients. And obviously, you know, this stuff, it sounds fairly obvious. Um, and, and, and maybe it is. Uh, however, the application and the practice of these things is what is, is most difficult about it. Well, I want to ask Dan. Yeah, there's a couple of so that's okay. Uh, uh, f- yeah, first is when you first uh, understood this concept of closer versus more, how did that impact your life? And then as you were teaching this concept to your clients, right, as you were discovering this, how did it affect their lives or their businesses? Yeah, there's a few examples that come to mind. So just as a little bit of context, we have a program called the Certified Certainty Advisor, and it's it's basically what we call the Certainty Operating System. And so we have these four commandments or assumptions that sort of anchor the entire operating system. And the first one is closer over more that we've been talking about. And so uh, the point is that more is not necessarily the answer. We want to think in terms of, is this action going to get me closer to the things that I want? And so sometimes more revenue can be the answer, but not always, or more properties could be the answer, but not always, right? So practical example, I hear this all the time from folks, and it's painful to point it out. It can be triggering for folks when they hear it, but they don't say to me, hey, my number one priority is I just want more time with my kids. I mean, if you guys... How many times have you heard someone say that? Right. I've always it's heard gone it. down a bit since COVID happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Since, since COVID, I don't know that people are like, I want more time with my kids, but like, I want more time with my kids. You're like, okay, how much more would you need to make a month to, to be able to have more time with your kids? And let's just say they come back with, I need to make 10 grand more per month. And if I had 10 grand more, I could, Uh, outsource some things, you know, pay for, uh, hire somebody else, so on and so forth. And uh, that would free up my time. Okay, what are your margins? 20% 20 profit margins. Okay, well, we need 50,000 a month in revenue to have 10 grand a month in profits. Yep. Okay, cool. Uh, All right. Well, 
I'm looking at your expenses and you spend $10,000 a month going to masterminds that actually require you to travel. What is the ROI on those masterminds? We go through it and it doesn't have to be masterminds, but that's always just an easy example. Um, and what you end up finding is they already have the $10,000 sitting there in expenses that could be cut software as a service things that they forgot about, so on and so forth. And so when you're thinking in terms of more, you're like, I just need more properties. I just need 50,000 more in revenue. But when you're thinking in terms of closer, you're like, what's the least amount of effort and risk that I can take on to fund this goal the fastest? And so oftentimes it's already sitting there. Uh, practical example for me, uh, I, I got an office six minutes. I said my number one priority is more time uh, with my kids. And uh, for $2,500 a month, I got an office six minutes from my house instead of driving downtown, which had become like 45 minutes to an hour of traffic each way. So for $2,500 a month, I funded like uh, you know, five to seven hours more time with my kids, right? Um, so it's just a different way of trying to approach things where the answer is not necessarily more revenue, more properties, so on and so forth. How about some of your, um, yeah, you're clients, touching I mean, on as your, I'm sorry, go ahead, Paul. I was going to, I was going to mention the, one of the things that I, that I learned in this, in the certainty program was an acronym called timer. Um, <clears throat> timer stands for, uh, I guess it was a way to represent the different currencies that we trade. And I, a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we deal in money. We think that's, Obviously, we know that's not the only currency, but it's it's tangible. We can count it. And so therefore, we use that as the you know denominator in most of our equations. Well, we know that there are other currencies you can trade. You know, in the acronym we use timer, we describe time, influence or impact, uh, money, of course, energy and relationships or reputation. And, you know, we have to recognize that there's multiple variables at play here. Money is not the most, well, is not the only currency. It can be what's most important in certain you know, phases of your life and things like that. But inevitably, anytime you make a trade for one currency, there are an infinite number of trade-offs and other currencies like your time, your energy, you could trade those things for money. Um, uh, but I, I, of course, there's infinite number of trade-offs with these different things. So I, I find that a, another uh, interesting way to lens to sort of see our decisions through. Uh, we're not just optimizing for money. Most of us aren't. So you know, important things to consider. Yeah, it's it's yeah. all it's all relative. So early in your career, early in your real estate investing, money might be the only priority. Or it might be 10 times more important than time, which is 10 more time, 10 times more important than energy, right? But then it changes because it's a bit of an infinite game in the sense that our, pri our priorities are constantly shifting. And, and so we have to recognize that. Now, it can be really triggering for other people when they're approaching you from the perspective of money. And you're like, yeah, that's cool. But right now, energy, I'm not interested in this because the amount of energy that it would take. We're like, but all this money, like, yeah, uh, but the energy that it costs for me to do this, it's not worth the trade-off of the, the money. It's important to understand that because uh, influence, you know, if you, the better you understand, and this is sort of like a Chris Voss concept of leading with empathy, right? The better that you understand the person on the other side, where they're coming from, and their currency in that moment of time, the more likely you are to be able to influence them or develop a rapport, right? So if, if you're leading with money, but they don't care about money right now, they just care about their reputation, uh, you're gonna have a hard time persuading them. And so one, it's important for us to know what we're trying to get closer to in this moment, but also to understand uh, the people in our network and whoever else we're trying to build a relationship with, where they're coming from, um, so that we can help them get closer as well. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, you're, as you were uncovering this, I mean, what would you say timeframe wise? When did you figure out this whole, you know, the importance of certainty? 
or closer versus more. I apologize. Um, I would say, yeah, closer versus more is one of the four four what I call commandments, and uh, things really started to crystallize for me about three years ago. Uh, Nick Peterson, who's part of the Whale Club, uh, he helped me teach this course that I call Cash Flow Engineering, and it was kind of me crystallizing. Uh, uh, methodology for how I examine people's financial and wealth situations. And in building out that program is when I sort of crystallize these commandments and then these principles that we teach in CCA. And um, how is that? So it was about three, three or four years ago. And when you, as you were uncovering this or going through this journey yourself, and you're obviously you're teaching this to your clients, right? Because you had a lot of clients. As, as you're teaching, you know, the clients that are working with you directly hands on, like what changes did you see in their life? Yeah, there's sort of a, once you learn these, this different orientation. So the orientation that we learn. So I went to business school okay? in business school. What everything that we learn is preparing us to work for a fortune 500 company. Uh, it's not necessarily preparing you to be an entrepreneur. Now, I went to business school naively thinking it's going to prepare me to be an entrepreneur. And I learned some valuable skills, but everything that I've almost everything that I've learned since has been the hard way. Um, because for, Fortune 500 company has a CEO of a Fortune 500 company has one singular obligation, and that's to maximize shareholder value. That is their job, maximize shareholder value. And maximize is inherently, by definition, is the most. And in fact, the most now, as quickly as possible. And the challenge is that when we try to apply a maximize framework to our personal life or to our small business or real estate portfolio, right? Maximize the most today. But as a team of one or very small team, we don't have the resources to maximize we have to optimize. It's a small shift. Optimizes what is the most efficient path forward given the things that I want, which brings us back to closer versus more. But this is sort of orientation that we go, okay, I'm trying to maximize, I should be optimizing. What else should I be doing differently? Okay, well, if I'm maximizing, I'm putting in the most amount of effort, I might be taking the most amount of risk. And the consequence of all of that is that I leave myself with no options committed all my time, committed all my capital, and now I just it just has to work out. I mean, I'm sure we all know uh, or have been in that own personal situation of having limited options because we've become you know, overcommitted or over, over leveraged. So there's sort of this, okay, I'm moving from maximize to now optimize. If I'm moving toward optimize, then I'm also trying to find the least amount of effort, the least amount of risk to have the most amount of options. Now, it doesn't mean we don't take no effort and we don't take any risk. It's just relatively speaking, relative to all the possibilities. How, how am I systematically putting in the least amount of effort, least amount of risk? So I started teaching these things to folks. And it's, it's kind of one of those things that you can't unsee it once or you can't unhear it. It's like, oh, wow, there's so many things that I'm doing right now in my life where I'm actually running a race against myself. So it's no wonder that one month I have like the highest month ever of cash. And then three months later, I'm broke because I'm trying to maximize. I'm trying to do all this stuff. And it's actually causing me to not have any of it happen. So I'm just guaranteeing that. that game. And so uh, these small little shifts uh, end up having a pretty significant impact. Now, the thing that I would tell people is it's simple. It's like incredibly simple. Yeah, I should optimize rather than maximize. Of course, I want to get closer rather than more. Why wouldn't I do that? Incredibly simple, but it's not easy. And it's not easy because the rest of the world is going to tell you something hyperbolic that you should be doing differently, like 10x. Now, 10x is massively built into our culture. And I'm not anti-10x. It's just you got a 10x in the right scenario. So you're running a relationship-based business. That's not really a 10x business. So it's just sort of uh, unlearning to some degree or reorienting on these really hyperbolic things that we're taught that don't necessarily work in a practical sense for a small business or for an individual. 
And it turns out these simple things have huge, huge impact. It's um, it's funny you're talking about the bank account balances. I feel like you've been looking at my, like you got my login to my Chase account. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> speak these, from these the big months and these zero months. These... Yeah, yeah. I call it the high high month paradigm. And because we're so we're so uh, wired towards more, what ends up happening is is that we have a tendency to extrapolate a single data point into a trend line. So we look and we say, oh. We just had the highest month of sales ever. We and we extrapolate that out. And we're like, well, that times twelve. Like uh, we're rich, like, you know. We get anchored to that, and now because we're anchored to it, loss aversion steps in, and now we're going to fight like hell to make sure that we have this seven or eight figure business, even though it's a single data point. We may not even have enough evidence to support that this is at truly a trend. So we end up uh, in in uh, the chase of more end up spending a bunch only to find out that that single data point wasn't actually a trend. And this is just human nature, right? Uh, we're all inherently biased as humans. And so I just tell people, let's just not, let's not fight against the fact that we're biased. Let's just acknowledge that that's true and then build systems around it so that we don't continue unintentionally ending up in a situation where we actually got further away. We thought we were getting closer. We we're actually just trying to get more. We end up further away. And now we got to, and then what's the consequence of that? Now we got to work 10 times harder to get yeah. back to where we were. To we got to go harder. <laughs> well, Steve, it reminds me of this word we hear all the time in our industry of scale, right? And it's, it's this all it's this alluring scale word and so what do we do uh, in my first year in business we would close some deals and then it's you know great let's take that money reinvest it back into buying more marketing hiring more people growing 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 and um you know i i found myself caught in that maximize framework and was able to fortunately course correct before we you know, uh, grew too fast. And of course, over the last 10, 12 years, it's, it was fairly easy for real estate investors to keep growing, growing, growing with the market. And, you know, taking that, you had a great month. Cool. We closed all these deals. Let's go hire another salesperson. Let's, let's open up another marketing channel. Let's do all these different things. And you continue to add complexity. And the entire time we're sitting here saying, yeah, but I wanted to sit on the beach and drink Mai Tais. And now I've got more overhead. I've got more people to manage. I've got more projects to take on. More stress, uh, this more was liability. my experience in the first year. Right. So yeah. it just comes back to, are you, first of all, are you maximizing or are you optimizing? And are you making decisions that get you closer to what you want? Or are you chasing more? And without an operating system, without an actual way to reason through your decisions, you're just making emotional based decisions. I found based on my experience, I was making a lot of emotional based decisions um, in the in the effort to chase more, build a bigger business and compete with, uh, you know, all these people at the masterminds, right, that have these big, incredible businesses. And it's it's a you know, it's something I see a lot. Yeah. And I think that there was something that Dan said here that was really powerful. Right. And. and it didn't sound like much, but it's really powerful. And it's that we make our decisions. And he says the best month paradigm. We make these decisions based off our best month. So like, all right, I closed 10 deals this month. I brought in 200,000 in revenue. So then I can expect to make 200,000 a month in revenue. So I can start making financial decisions, making monthly expenses, commitments and hiring and marketing based off my best month. And it's never like you have your best month and then you have 12 consecutive months hitting that or more. It's never happened that way, but we make all our decisions based off of that. Yeah, I, that specific observation of the highest month paradigm, I realized that it wasn't just in business that I was doing that, but it was pervasive across my entire life. So I used to do a lot of uh, endurance sports like uh, triathlons and marathons and all that sort of stuff used to, I got little kids, a little bit more difficult to be like, I'm going to go on a six hour bike ride, you know, see you later. 
Uh, but hopefully I'll get back to that. Anyhow, if you've ever done any of that sort of endurance type stuff, you know that some days you just feel stronger. It, and we could apply this in any sport, right? Some days you're just making every shot, and then the next day you're like, why am I missing every shot? Like, I think my form is the same. It's just something that, something that happens. Uh, so, and you do a race, and every once in a while you set a PR, personal record. Now, what we end up doing to ourselves is that now that becomes the new baseline, and we're measuring ourselves against our best. And so then every system we've designed is I'm going to work at my personal record or more. It's like every day I'm going to run a faster marathon time. Right? It's like, wait a minute. There's a reason why that was a personal record and I feel so accomplished from it. But for some reason, that's now become my expectation. I was doing that in work. I'd have a day where it's like, yeah, I got back to every email. I got all of this, you know, this massive list. I got 30 things done off my list. And then the next day, I'm measuring myself against the, the 30. And I, I've now committed to, to all these projects as if every day I can get 30 things done. But that was my personal best. So we design systems around our personal best rather than based off our rolling average. Now, our rolling average can go up over time. This is a rolling average. Uh, and I can but better to design the system against the rolling average that accounts for incremental improvements rather than designing a system that assumes every day I'm operating my personal best. So we do that with revenue. We do that with output. We do that with you know, on and on and on and on. All right. And so that's how we just continue down this sort of suffer, unintended suffering, running again, a race against ourselves. If we just orient to thinking a little bit differently and building a system around rolling average that actually changes everything the whole it's like a one degree shift that over a one year time frame becomes you know, we're significantly further ahead this would have been really helpful dan if you would have shared this wisdom with me about 15 years ago <laughs> that is uh that is something i say to myself man it would have been great if i would have figured this out 15 years ago but also probably uh the thing that i hear uh the most often is I sure wish I heard this sooner. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, I think, uh, the reason why I can speak with such authority on these things is because it's an observation from thousands of clients, but also my own personal observation about things that I've done. Even though I went to business school, even though I got an accounting degree, I helped write an accounting standard, you know, whatever, um, uh, still did all of those things. Still had to learn the hard way because everything is oriented towards the next record, uh, more maximize. There's a, if, ever, yeah, if I don't lose, lose everybody, I do a little bit of math just to prove why this is true. So say that it's, and this is called system reliability and say that we build a plan. Now everyone like, is told that you gotta have a detailed plan, right? build a business plan. Uh, what's your plan for this uh, project that you take on? Let's where are all the steps. So let's just say that we have a five-step plan. Does that sound okay? Five steps. Step one yep. in our plan, we have a hundred percent. We feel a hundred percent confident that it's going to go exactly the way that we mapped it out. Okay. So right now, the the probability of success is a hundred percent. Well, let's say step two in our plan has fifty percent probability of success. Now, what is the overall probability of success for our plan? It's 50%. It's 100% times 50. Now, if the third step has 100%, we're still at 50% overall success, 100 times 50 times 100. But if the fourth step is also 50% probability, now the likelihood of our total plan being successful is 25%, 100 times 50 times 100 times 50. And if the fifth step is a 50% probability of success, now we're at 12.5% probability of success. So any step that we add along the way that has less than 100% probability decreases the overall reliability of the system. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Did I lose you guys on it? And so, again, back to 
uh, building out all these systems and processes and trying to chase more is that when we don't have any data, that means that chances are the probability of success in each of our steps along the way is less than 100%. And so in a way, we've already doomed ourselves to fail from the beginning, right? Uh, people say fail, uh, fail to plan, plan to fail. I think uh, I've heard that from a lot of uh, my dad. <laughs> it's like a dad thing to say, to fail to plan, plan to fail. It actually yeah. turns out that if you fail to plan but not account for failing, then you ensure that you're going to fail. In other words, the plan yeah. needs to uh, be one step at a time and be uh, flexible enough that as you get more data, you can adjust. And that's really a much more of a closer optimizing one step at a time. So one step, I get more data. Doesn't mean I don't think I know what step two is, but I'm open to getting more data to increase the probability of success, you know, one step at a time. But we're so wired for this detail plan. Hey, Dan, you, once. you told yeah, us a story about uh, name the, don't name the puppy. Yeah. I think that's seems relevant in this scenario you mind telling us what that sure. what that phrase means yeah so uh it could be pick any uh animal of choice that you want to adopt uh i happen to be a dog lover i got my dog pickles hanging out nearby uh if you've ever gone to uh to adopt a puppy and you walk in and you see the puppy and you or your significant other or your kids give that puppy a name that is now your dog, right? Like pickles. I see pickles at the, uh, you know, say, say we go to an animal rescue. I see the dog. I'm like, that looks like a pickles. Uh, I like ridiculous. I like either really serious dog names or I like ridiculous dog names. So, uh, uh, you know, that's just my own personal preference. But how big of a jerk am I that I just left pickles at the, the rescue? animal shelter. Like I just gave that dog a name. Uh, for those of you in, in uh, I think most of the audience, maybe all the audience is in real estate. What do you want to do? And I used to be a real estate broker, owned a brokerage. Uh, you want to get someone to like start painting the picture of their life there. Right? Like we're going to put the TV here. We're going to move this wall. We're going to paint it. Oh, this is where your mom can stay when she comes to town. Right. It's like they're naming the puppy. And the concept of naming the puppy is basically when you've made that idea your own and now it's become your own, like you're taking it with you. And so we have all these puppies, processes, systems, ideas, the future that we put a name to it. Right? We've already envisioned our life as this is how it's going to be. And now that we've done that, it becomes very difficult for us to not proceed down that path. It's loss aversion. So a loss an equivalent loss hurts more than an equivalent gain. So making $100 hurts a lot more than, or uh, losing $100 hurts a lot more than making $100. You know, losing 100,000 hurts a lot more than feels good to make 100,000. So once we've named something, just because we're biased humans, uh, losing that idea, that plan that we committed to is actually much harder than having come up with the plan to begin with. You know, it's, so that's I mean, just acknowledging the way things are. So, you know, you take that in the sports, right? I mean, I see you're, you're wearing a Seattle jersey. I'm in Arizona, right? So I'm a Cardinals fan. So we got rivalry here, yeah. right? Losing yeah, to the Seahawks yeah, hurts way more than beating than the, 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 the joy from beating the Seahawks, right? Or when you're playing the sport yourself, like losing to the <laughs> losing the game hurts way more than winning the game. And I think, you know, you're talking about naming the puppy. Maybe yeah. you're, you're familiar with the, you're, I mean, you're in sales. You're familiar with the puppy dog clothes, right? Which is yeah. basically, you know, like the, this pet stop, uh, pet store owner, you know, you got a couple of kids that came in to look at the puppy. It's like, well, you know, you guys don't have to decide. Why don't you take the puppy home yeah. for the weekend? And then, and then you, know, you know, after the weekend's over, come on back. If you're not happy with the puppy, you know, just bring the dog back. So I guess the addition we would add then to the puppy dog clothes, like, hey, don't forget to add, or maybe you should help name the puppy before you leave. So then the puppy's not coming back. Yeah. So then the follow-up question, okay, we named the puppy. We got this puppy now. Are you, are you prepared to raise this puppy for the next 12 to 14 years? 
because that's what we'll do on these marketing campaigns and other things, right? Is it's not just a bad idea for a month. It's like, no, this is a bad idea. This has been a bad idea for like five years now. We're still doing it, right? Even though there's yeah. a mountain of evidence to support it. Yeah, are you prepared to raise this puppy for the next 12, 14 years is a very powerful question. How about you, Paul? Yeah, but it's also yeah, it silly. Well, like, and this, it's also kind of ridiculous, though. Like, it's hard not to laugh when you're talking about, like, naming the puppy on an idea. Like, I always check when someone's like, you named the puppy on this. Part of it just makes me laugh. You know, something silly about it, you know? Whereas, again, someone's like, I'm questioning the efficacy of this idea. Okay, well, now uh, confirmation bias is going to step in, and I'm going to give you a bunch of reasons why I... I was right and I'm still right. Yeah, a lot of defensiveness kicks in. A lot of defensiveness kicks in where I was like, yeah, you know, this is not a good idea. But yeah, your part where like, hey, did you name this puppy? Uh, Maybe I overcommitted on this one. Well, and it blinds you to more efficient paths forward, right? That's, I think, bring it back to the closer versus more commandment is we're trying to get closer to the things that we want yet we define so far in advance the things that have to happen and and now we've named that puppy and we're committed to it and so when another opportunity presents itself that might provide a more efficient path forward we can't see it because we got this puppy that's keeping us busy and we're taking care of it all the time um so i found myself violating that in my first year of business around getting caught up with the number of deals per month that I was doing. I wanted to do more deals per month and so that I could show up to collective genius and be like, look how many deals I just did. Right. Um, but what I found out was doing more deals in my market actually got me further away from the things that I wanted, which was more time to have, to be able to pursue different business ventures and, you know, things that really made me excited. Um, and like Dan said before, these a lot of these uh, puppies that we name cloud our decision-making from, from figuring out the best path forward. So when I recognized that I had named that puppy, that just that language alone helped me reorient to, it's not necessarily about how many deals we do, it's about how profitable the business is. Some people wanna have a really large business because they wanna make a big impact on their team, on the community, you know, different things like that. Um, and other people want a business that can support their lifestyle. And so again, this, this naming the puppy thing I found was, was really helpful to, to uh, help filter my decisions to get me closer to the things that I want, not just chase more because everybody wants more puppies. Yeah, I so, think that was really well said. Dan, another, another concept ahead. that I wanted to, to, to hear from you about is, um, so Steve and I have been talking a lot about this idea, this term business treasury. And I got that term from you and Nick. This is a, a major tool that I'm using right now to help get me closer to the things that I want. Can you, because uh, you have a much more eloquent way of, uh, of talking about these, these different things. Can you explain what is a business treasury? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I mentioned... Uh, and I won't go into the details and scare it all away again, but I mentioned I helped write this accounting standards. So I did this uh, fellowship at the board that writes all the accounting standards in the U.S. Again, promise to not elaborate on that. Um, but it's sort of the equivalent of the Supreme Court in the accounting space. And uh, the project I worked on was this derivatives and hedge accounting project. And uh, all my constituents were basically... Uh, governments, organizations that had large investment portfolios. And that sort of unintentionally put me down this path of spending the first now third of my career. I was, uh, now I'm getting older, first third of my career working in treasury and capital markets and all that stuff. So I had clients like Microsoft as an example, and people go, Microsoft, they're a, a large investment portfolio. What are you talking about? They're a software company. 
Well, yeah, in 2004, they had $100 billion in investments under management. They um, paid out to their shareholders a one-time special dividend of $30 billion back in 2004. When I checked recently, um, they have somewhere around $200 billion on their balance sheet in investments, cash, cash equivalent, and primarily short-term investments. Short-term investments are by definition investments you intend to hold for one year or less. Long-term is more than a year. Uh, and then I looked at Apple's balance sheet recently. I think they had 220 plus billion. Now, and theirs is mostly long-term investments. Google has a significant amount. You go, hold on, these are software companies. Why do they have these such significant investment portfolios? Well, it turns out when you pull up and you start looking at industries, um, you go, okay, software tech companies. Well, many of them, the Fortune 500 businesses at least, they're a technology company and they're also kind of a bank. If you've got $200 billion in investments, you're kind of a bank. In fact, we audited Microsoft's treasury the same way we audited banks. Because functionally, half of their that's how they manage. They have a whole trading floor, so on and so forth. Uh, you look at airlines. What do airlines have? You, well, you get to the end of your flight and they're like, hey, do you have the Alaska Airlines credit card yet? Or pick whatever airline. They have this whole credit card. You, you look at the major retailers. They want to sell you a credit card. You look at the auto auto industry. What do they have? Financing. So the point is that there's a lot at, at uh, sort of the big industry level. They function as whatever their core industry is, but also as a bank. Right? And what they're doing is, is that they're leveraging this, this uh, part of their business. The treasury is basically managing cash cash management is sort of what um, the treasury function is intended to do, manage cash. But effectively, because they've stockpiled so much cash, they're using it to uh, hedge various risks in their business. So like Microsoft has a significant amount of non-US denominated revenue, meaning they get paid in uh, all kinds of currencies that are not US dollar. So this is disclosed in their financial statements. They have a significant they use a significant portion of their assets to hedge foreign currency risk, meaning some fluctuation compared to the U.S. dollar. Uh, they also have, you know, investments in, in real estate, other structured investments, strategic investments, so on and so forth. And the, and the consequence of that is that uh, they earn two to three billion dollars a year in investment income, but they also are able to be incredibly strategic and fund future initiatives from their investment portfolio. And so that just sort of led me down this journey over the last couple of years of thinking about, well, how could a small business owner behave in a similar way? Because I get stuck on these thoughts and I start thinking about, well, how could I build a treasury, a reserve of cash and other investments where I was generating enough yield off of that investment portfolio that it paid for all of my operating expenses. So covered salary, fixed, other fixed costs, et cetera. Like if I could build a treasury that covered all my operating expenses, then effectively I can do whatever I want in my business at this point. I can take on whatever client I want, right? Because anything that comes in is profit at that point. It's all profit because I'm covering the costs, my costs, not from revenue, but from yield off of my investment income. And it turned out that we're in this weird period of time with crypto. Weird is not the right descriptor because crypto is in the same place that the internet was about 20 years ago. So, um, but it turned out that there's lots of opportunities to yield uh, significant returns through staking and other things from crypto that could, could then be used to, uh, pay for operating expenses. So then I started thinking, well, how can I amplify my balance sheet? And that's, and I, I came up with that term, uh, amplify my balance sheet. There might be better, there might be another tech, more technical term for, for it. But essentially, how can I do things like 
uh, uh, incentivize clients to pay me in advance. And that would be called unearned revenue. So I actually don't have uh, taxable revenue. I have a liability. And so I'm going to take that liability and get yield off of it and to pay for my operating expenses. So I'm adding, collecting these deposits so that I can uh, get cash, more cash in faster so that I can create uh, more yield off that investment so that I can pay for my operating expenses faster. So, uh, so that's just sort of this thing that I've been uh, building out in my own businesses and we'll be doing for partners so that ultimately by having this treasury, uh, I have a lot of leverage, not in the debt sense, I might, but a lot of leverage in my decision-making. So Microsoft and Apple, they can pretty well do whatever they want with their vendors, partners, so on and so forth, in part because they're so large, but in part because they have such a massive investment portfolio that they could buy anybody out whenever they want. It's, it's so interesting you're talking about, powerful. but it's interesting as far as like, um, the, the, every, all these major companies have hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, in their bank. So, you know, I've always kind of said like, we were all in the sales and marketing business, like right? every business is a sales and marketing business, but it sounds like every business is a sales and marketing and banking business. Yeah. At least at the fortune 500 level most of them functionally are whatever the industry they're in and they're a bank. And then they'll add things like uh, what strategic or structured investments. So take the case of, of uh, I have a bunch of crypto earnings. Now I might take those gains and put them into an opportunity zone fund, or I might buy. So then I take the gains and now I'm deferring the tax. Uh, or I might, uh, if I'm a, uh, I might have a bunch of taxable income now for my pass through business. Now I'll take that, some of that income and I'll buy some short term rentals uh, or long term rentals, depending on my situation, because I want accelerated depreciation because I can offset 100% of business income with real estate losses. So it's sort of I can take core business, then I can take the cash, try to amplify my balance sheet, get more cash, get more cash so that I can get or yield from crypto, take the crypto and uh, yield gains, pay some of the operating expense, but I can also use some of the cash to put in real estate to get capital gain deferral or losses. And so now I put myself in a situation where not only do I have uh, significantly more profitability, but I also might be paying less in tax as well. So net net, I'm even further, further along from a cash flow perspective. So it all can kind of fit together in a business, crypto, real estate, fit it all together in a way that um, is optimized. Yeah. So that's um, how we actually get closer. Right? Is I'm doing the same amount of work, but significantly less effort because I've, right. I've got a balance sheet that's working for me. And uh, Paul kind of uh, shared this with me uh, sometime back. Basically, you know, he's doing these flips. He needs to have a uh, hundred grand or whatever in the bank to to ride this, you know, all these flips. And uh, he was able to. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, Paul? What you're able to do with that for your own business treasury? Yeah. So when I met Dan and Nick middle of last year and started understanding some of these concepts, I was eager to set my own business treasury up. And by about January of this year, I was able to get my business treasury to essentially fund my business. 95% um, of my operating expenses were covered by my business treasury. And that completely changed the way I look at business. I didn't need to make decisions based off of, it sounds silly to say this, revenue. Um, I started being able to make more preference-based decisions. Do I want to do this? Is this something I would enjoy? Those were powerful uh, frameworks to be able to decide th uh, through. And the only way I was able to do that was through having this business treasury. What I like about it is it cash flows. It's leverageable meaning I can borrow against it so I don't have to liquidate my cash. If it's just sitting in a bank, you have to 
you know, use that cash. Um, and so, so these principles of the business treasury are, are, are powerful tools. And unfortunately, Dan sort of alluded to this, this has been a Fortune 500 company type play. Small business owners, most of our, us real estate investors where we're doing you know, less than 100 deals a year, some, some of the guys in CG Premier are doing significantly more than that, right? But um, this business treasury gave me a lot of freedom to make decisions that weren't from a, a, a revenue perspective. It was more on, on the lines of, well, do I want this business? Is this, is this a partner I want to do business with? Is this a project I'm interested in doing? It's, it, gave me, it gave me a lot of power. Yeah. So, uh, I think that this is our very first episode. So thank you everyone for watching. Um, this is our very first episode and we only covered, was it, you said four, uh, you, it, this is one closer versus more. This is one of four. What do you call it? Yeah. So our operating system, the wealth we have, commandments. Yeah. We have four wealth commandments. wealth commandments or certainty commandments. And then we have 12 and those sort of are, base assumptions, everything comes back to those four assumptions yeah. or commandments. And then so, we have 12 principles that are like tools that we use to, to um, make sure that we're applying those assumptions or getting to those assumptions. So yeah, we just spent an hour and we only covered one of the commandments and a little bit of information about business treasury. So this is something we're gonna be doing every week, every Friday, uh, one o'clock Pacific, four o'clock Eastern. Right. So um, thank you, Dan, for jumping on. Paul is, uh, you know, we're business partners in Whale Club. The three of us are, are business partners with one more person, Nick, uh, who is, the, I think, the most famous of the four of us, uh, uh, is we're going to be, you know, doing this on a regular basis. But on top of all that, uh, we do have uh, the Whale Club where we're going to be talking about this in depth as well. So if you guys are interested in, in hearing more, go to blockchainwhales.com. And we are doing an event Paul, can you speak a little bit about the event? Yeah, we're doing a, an event here in Denver, uh, Friday night, the 16th and uh, September, sorry, the 16th of September and the 17th of September. We're gonna have Nick and Dan and another one of our favorites, uh, Dr. Jeff Spencer. He's worked with a bunch of Olympic medalists. He's, a, he's an absolute legend. And then you and I, Steve, of course, we're gonna be discussing these principles we're calling it the certainty uh what do we what do we decide on the whale club certainty, oh, certainty event, event. I, I guess we need a better mm -hmm. title for it yeah um and so we're just going to be talking in depth about these different principles how do they apply specifically to real estate you know dan has put this awesome program together but he's applying it very broad strokes to a bunch of different industries. I've been fortunate to meet a bunch of different business owners in all sorts of industries. And what we're doing is we're taking those concepts and applying them directly to our real estate business, to our industry specifically. So if you, if you're interested in the, the kind of topics we're discussing here, uh, think about showing up to our event in September. Yep. So guys, I posted, yeah, I posted I the link here. Awesome. Go ahead, Dan. I was going to say, uh, I know the event is going to be awesome. I'm super excited to come out. And like you said, Dr. Jeff is a, is a legend. But I have seen the notes that Paul has put together, and uh, it's impressive. So I think uh, for those of you who want, who are interested in this different way of thinking and you want to see the application to real estate, I mean, Paul is a, a beast in terms of uh, the note-taking and practical application. So, yeah. Uh, I'm excited yeah, to see so, the two of you collectively. Yeah, and with uh, Dr. Jeff Spencer, and we haven't even talked a lot about Nick, and Nick is going to be on one of these. Uh, he couldn't make it because he's attending, he's hanging out with Chris Voss right now, right? So, <laughs> I mean, how great is that situation? So he's going to Chris Voss's movie premiere and having dinner with him tonight. So uh, Nick is another person that's going to be on uh, these uh, uh, videos every uh, so often, but he's also going to be speaking at the event uh, next or in September. So. You guys are interested in that? I have the link here in the uh, chat. It's going to be in the description. Uh, if you can't find it, go to blockchainwhales.com. Uh, so uh, thank you all. This has been an awesome first episode, and we're not even—I mean, we're just, just scratching the, the the tip, right, of the of the of the surface here. So 
Uh, thank you, Dan. Wealth Wizard, by the way. I don't know if you saw that or not, but we put your title as Wealth Wizard. Um, so thank you, Dan. Okay, thank you, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for watching, and we'll see you all next Friday.